Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us this week on Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. I'm Carly McBride, Marketing Program Manager and your host for this week. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Jerry Fernandez, President and Founder of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. Jerry joins us today as a celebratory episode for the 25th anniversary of MFHA. The mission of MFHA is to bring the economic benefits of diversity and inclusion to the food and hospitality industry by building bridges and delivering solutions. MFHA commits to delivering more connections and opportunities to build its members' cultural intelligence to effectively engage multicultural employees, customers, and communities. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We're really excited to hear the story about MFHA. Let's get started. To start us off, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your organization, MFHA? Oh, okay. So I'm Jerry, Jerry Fernandez. I've uh, been president and founder of MFHA since uh, 1996. I'm starting my 47th year in the restaurant hospitality space, native of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, graduate of the fine Johnson and Wales University, you know, open restaurants for Ned Gray's, the Capitol Grill, Hemingway's, did my time on Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Shelter Island Heights, the Waldorf Astoria, before I went to work for Ernie Royal up in Vermont, Ernie was the first black director of the National Restaurant Association. And, you know, that really was a, a turning point for me. First time I worked for a man of color and uh, really gave me some some insights that helped me long term. Um, I ended up going to General Mills after I finished my stint with uh, the Capitol Grill out, out in Minneapolis. I moved the whole family out there. And it was while I was at General Mills that uh, I got introduced to the concept of diversity. The whole diversity management, the, the company had done a really good job in recruiting talent of color, you know, in there from the top MBA schools. But they had a series of where they lost three top African-American women in an instant. And the CEO said, we got to find out what the heck the problem was. And that's how their diversity initiative got started. They started asking some questions about their employees of color. And you know, I got I was involved with that and ended up going to the Women's Food Service Forum, and, and it was while I was at WFF, you know, one of like five men out of 500 people at this conference in Atlanta that I uh, saw and met three women of color at high-level positions, and I'd never seen them before in all my experiences. And, and we said, hey, if there's a need for a women's organization, there's probably a need for a multicultural organization. And, and I said, I'm going to do something about that. And they kind of, you know, smiled and said, well, okay, fine. If you get that idea, you come and see us. Well, six months later, I was back. And and so on uh, the 17th of September in 1996, we got 17 companies together. We said, why not us? Why not now? And here we are 25 years later after having really helped put diversity management on the agenda of the entire industry and framing it out in a way that you, you think of a dinner table. There's four seats at the dinner table. And the way we look at how we manage diversity is workforces in one of those seats, the customers in the second seat. Uh, the communities that you work in and serve is in the third seat, and then the supply chain's number four. And companies that manage diversity really well are addressing all four seats at the dinner table. And so that's the concept that we put out there. And and uh, like I said, we've been banging that drum for 25 years. And and so we were really excited about having our opportunity to say, hey, look, we're still here 25 years later um, working on the same kind of challenges. Well, congratulations to you and your team on 25 successful years. 
Can you talk a little bit about why was MFHA and your vision so important 25 years ago? You talked about how it started. Why was it so important to you? Well, you know, this diversity, equity, and inclusion, as it's called now, it was the DNI, it was diversity before that, it was affirmative action before that, it was the EOC. You know, it's a whole long line, a continuum of of trying to create fair access for people of difference, in particular here in the U.S., you know, the uh, black community, African-Americans in particular, have had a long journey of trying to be included. And so there was a, a study called Workforce 2000 that was, I don't remember exactly the year it came out, but I probably read it somewhere around 96 or 97. And it really said, by the time we get to 2000, this is what the workforce is going to look like. You're going to see a lot more multicultural, a lot more black, Latino, Asian immigrants. The white population is growth is going to start to slow. And, you know, companies, you need to be thinking about what that means for your business. And so I think that was what drove a lot of people. But for us, it was representation. We could see that that uh, there were lots of women and people of color in, in the workforce. They just were not advancing. And again, I take a page out of the Women's Food Service Forum. You know, they, they uh, got there first and began to say, hey, look at how do we advocate for women? Things aren't moving fast enough. And so I think from a diversity and uh, inclusion perspective, companies started to recognize the fact that, hey, we have, we have all this growing diversity in the workplace. You know, let's really talk about what systemically, what, what systems, structures, policies, and procedures are in place that prevent people of color from moving up in the organization. So we always felt like the, the one everybody would get would be workforce, you know, our employees, you know, regardless of package that God put them in, if they feel valued and they have an opportunity to contribute at a high level, you know, that goes to the bottom line. So your turnover goes down, your employee satisfaction scores go up. If your employees are happy and they feel good and they feel valued, well, guess what? They give their customers good customer service. I mean, Marriott said that years ago, take care of your employees. They'll take care of the customer. And so it seems pretty logical, but uh, for a lot of reasons, we weren't making progress on it. And, you know, truth be told, there are some people for whom this is viewed as a zero-sum game, that if you get a piece of pizza and then I get less. And that's not really the way to look at it, but there are still people even to this day who, who are pretty comfortable with the way the opportunities are slanted in their favor. If you open up the door for women and people of color, there's more competition. Uh, let's just look at sports. I mean, we, there were years we didn't have black quarterbacks because they didn't think they were smart enough. Well, that was never the case. And look what's happened in baseball with the influx of greater diversity there and much more uh, Hispanics playing baseball. What would baseball be without the Latino contribution? Um, and then you look at basketball. We have international. So a lot of sports sometimes is a metaphor for life. But in our industry, you know, we, we talk about it being a meritocracy. But the reality is if you don't get stretch assignments, if someone doesn't say to you, Carly, you know, I can see you at the next level. You don't have the confidence. And if Tiger Woods needs a coach, okay, as good as he, he's been over the course of his career, he's got a coach, uh, then guess what? We need to coach our people. So, um, you know, the, the issue of workforce is always going to be primary because uh, without people, we can't get it done. And look at where we are right today. I mean, we're, we've never had a more challenging work environment because young people are saying, I want to make sure that I have a life, that I want to work for a company that stands for something. So diversity, equity, inclusion is front and center. And I would be remiss if I didn't 
bring up the George Floyd incidents. And what I know as a black man with three black sons and three grandsons, you know, what's been happening with police and, and the black community is not news to us. It's news to a lot of people because they saw it on TV. It's not news to us. And those, so those kinds of things are on the top of a lot of people's agenda, corporations who never checked in on diversity. I never heard the word of racism or all those types of things that have been talked about now in corporate boardrooms because people recognize we've got to make some change. So you talked a bit about the evolution of your vision. Can you kind of sum it up? How has that vision changed and why is it so important right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. Even for MFHA, we we started out mimicking the Women's Food Service Forum. And in our first conference, you know, we didn't call it an annual conference because we didn't know if we would be around the next year. So we better just not get too ambitious. Uh, as it turned out, you know, the conference was needed because nobody was speaking to the issue. And so there's a couple of distinctions here. MFHA was founded and always built on the premise that diversity was good for the bottom line. So we know that there's a lot of social, moral, ethical reasons to be inclusive, to reach out to people from different cultural groups and, and help them advance their careers. But it was always about good for the bottom line. It's good for the business. It's good for the brand. It's good for the image. The second thing is we were always focused on helping minority businesses grow at the same time as we help individuals grow their career. So whether you want to work for a corporation, we want to help you get as high as far as your talents and your ambition will take you. By the same token, we want to see more franchisees of color. We want to see more businesses from, from our side of the ledger participating in all the commerce that our industry drives. So, so it was a representation in the early years to just, you know, explain what diversity is, tell them why it's important, make the business case. And then it began to morph when we saw the economic downturn from the recession. Uh, a lot of people who said we were really interested in this, oh, this is important. Soon as the headwinds came, soon as the bumps in the road came, they ran for the hills. So we saw about 50% of our membership just evaporate. Because people said, I got to focus on what's important. And they were clearly saying that diversity wasn't important. I've had people tell me over the course of time that we have money and resources to address women in our organization, but we don't have any money for people of color. So budgets reflect priority. If you have no resources to develop people of difference, you make basically saying that you don't matter. And that's not going to work for us going forward. So the vision it had to go just from go beyond just advocacy. This is the right thing to do. His is a business case for this, and now this is how you do it. And that's that's kind of where we spent the second half of our development is is showing people how to do it. And and now as we as we uh, respond to all the racial reckoning that's going on, you know, people are coming to the table who who've never came to the table before, and talking in a serious way. Now some people, you know, are doing it because they think they got to do it. Or their employees saying they got to do something. They haven't figured out a strategy yet. And that's where I think MFHA can play a big role is how and why does this work for your particular company and your brand and your sector? And how do you make sure that all the work that you do ties back to your core vision so that it's not an add-on? It becomes integral to who you are. So authenticity comes out of, of that, that you're working on things that really fit your brand. That you really So for example, Disney is never going to be associated with alcohol beverage alcohol company. I mean, it's just not because th their brand is about kids. 
uh, children, young people having a good time. So there are some things that just don't, gambling doesn't fit with them very well. So the same thing for brands. They've got to figure out where do we fit? What's our, our style? How do we tell a story that's inclusive, um, that a place for people like you? So over time, uh, not only has our vision changed, the, the needs of the industry have changed and companies are going to have to evolve as the market changes. And so right now, people want to know what you stand for, the whole issues of global warming and whether you believe it, you don't believe it, you know, things that happened in New Orleans and the floods in New York, those are real things. Those impacted real people. Okay. You don't have to think it's, it's real, but it's real. It's the, the COVID-19 is real. You maybe didn't impact you, but I lost five family members, including my sister in the last month to COVID-19. And so when someone says, well, that's fake news, uh, it's not fake news to me and people uh, like me who, who have, have experienced, you know, the pain of losing someone to something that was completely preventable. My sister didn't get a vaccine. She didn't believe. She thought the vaccine was fake news. And so she's not here as a result of it. But the same is true of this economic divide that we're seeing in the industry, in the country right now, where there's the haves and have nots. You and I, you know, we have 401ks, but a lot of our employees, they, they don't. And so when the market's going sky high, it doesn't mean anything to them. So we have to be relevant and being sensitive to diversity, equity, inclusion, helps keep the organization and its leadership relevant to what the issues are so you can change and be there to meet the needs of your changing workforce and your customer base as well. Jerry, I'm so sorry about your uh, your sister and your additional family members. I send my condolences to your family. Yeah, I, I, listen, I, I love my sister, but she knew. She was a nurse for 35 years in the neonatal intensive care unit at Boston City Medical Center. So she knew. But, you know, that's what we have. That's where we find ourselves now. And companies, whether they like it or don't like it, are going to have to address these kinds of issues and talk about how it impacts their employees. Because without our employees, our hourly employees, our first level managers, we can't win. So we've got to find a way to develop those folks. I'm a walking example of what our industry can produce. I was a, a knucklehead when I was in junior high school and high school, and I was headed in the wrong direction you know, either the cemetery or the penitentiary, one of the two. And it was, it was because of, of my foods teacher, a white woman who was a Cornell grad, put her hand on my shoulder and said, Jerry, there's this school opening up down the road called Johnson of Wales, and you're pretty good at cooking. You should try it. And well, no one told me I could go to school. I went, took the tour with my brother and saw a guy there with a fro, a big afro, and he was black like me. And he said, you should come here. You could do this. That's my first diversity lesson. You have to see people like you experiencing success in order for a lot of people to get it. And we've got to expose our young people. Right now, we have a huge opportunity as an industry to go back out and start reselling our industry, telling young people, uh, college people, giving them a real reason why you, need, you could come to work for us, whether it's a year or a full career. If you come to work for a McDonald's or any other quick service restaurant, you're going to know how to run a business. Those skills go with you everywhere you go in your career. You don't have to look at it as, I don't want to drop French fries. I want to go there and learn how to run a business, learn how to work with other people and develop my skills. And then I can take that on to whatever career option that might lay out before me as I grow and develop in my career. So, you know, we're, we have to own who we are. You can go from the dishroom to the boardroom. That's where I started as a dishwasher. You know, I couldn't speak very well. I didn't know how, how to put collar stays in my shirt. I didn't know the value of, 
of being prompt and on time. And it was all the coaching and the pruning that I got from, frankly, a lot of white men and women who said, Jerry, you have talent, but you got to do this, not that. So we've got to own that we're a developing industry of people. You don't have to all stay with us for the whole of your career, but we're proud of what we do. Dish room to the boardroom. On a lot of places, you can still do that. And the work I do today is taking me all the way around the world. And it's cared for my family and my grandkids. It's going to give me a nice, comfortable retirement thanks to food service. And that's the message that we have to get out there. That's fantastic. And that speaks a lot to some of the workforce challenges that the industry is facing right now. I know a lot of companies are looking for more intuitive and unique ways to recruit and retain their workforce. So thank you for speaking to that. Did you know the National Restaurant Association produces and hosts several webinars each month to serve and grow the industry? Topics ranging from hiring and workforce, food safety, and the most urgent and relevant policy topics during this turbulent time for restaurants. All previous webinars are also available for on-demand viewing. To learn more about upcoming and recorded webinars, please visit restaurant.org slash events slash learning. That's restaurant.org slash events slash learning. Speaking specifically about the pandemic, how has the pandemic shifted your multicultural view and given you the chance to kind of re-envision this industry? Well, you know, I think the, um, the pandemic and the racial reckoning revealed what's been there all along. Inequities, okay? Who suffered the most through the pandemic? People of color. People who have money, we could socially distance, go to our, our uh, house in the Hamptons or up in the mountains or, or go to the family place down in, the, uh, in, in Florida or whatever. But people who, who don't have means had no way to, to get away from. They still had to take the bus. They still had to go to work. They still had to go to work in a hospital or, or in our industry, and they got exposed. So to me, pandemic forced us to have to look at some of the realities of our work. And we re realized that these people, if we call them essential workers, okay, uh, you know, do we pay them like they're essentials? That's always been a challenge for our industry. You know, we don't have high margins in our industry, but we got to find a way to do better. We got to find a way to better compensate our people. We got to find a way at some point in this country to get to an area where healthcare is less of, a, of an economic discussion and more of a of a need, you know, if people all got vaccinated and people all had access to healthcare and wellness, you know, before you got sick, you know, look at the costs that would be driven out of the system. Now that's, that's for a conversation with people who got more skills and knowledge than me, but it's one of the industry issues we face and we dance around it and we should be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And so the discussion here has to continue to be for our industry to say, Hey, what role can we and should we be playing in our industry in terms of, of leveling the playing field and making sure that everybody has access to opportunity? Uh, and that also means, you know, a quality standard of living. The other thing that the pandemic ties to is the racial inequities in this country. I mean, our franchising initiative, you know, we were fortunate enough, PepsiCo uh, had confidence enough to give us $2.5 million to start a black franchising initiative. And what's that all about is that black people only represent 8% of franchising in this country. We got to do better than that because we can run them. You see lots of blacks in, in underrepresented groups running businesses and running restaurants, 
but we don't see them owning them. And that's something that we have to be focused on is finding a way for people to get into ownership. So that's one of the initiatives we're working on. The other one is address the leadership gap. In 2014, we had six black CEOs. Today, we have zero. And that is because we don't have a pipeline. You know, Dr. Patanza's Harvard PhD, uh, one of my uh, mentors, taught me that uh, from his work with the military, it takes 17 years to grow a colonel in the U.S. Army. It takes about 17 years to create a vice president in our industry. And I I like tulips. And so that means you got to plant tulip bulbs in the fall, like right now in October. You got to dig the ground, plant them. If you don't, there will be no tulips in April. And that's the same metaphor for our industry. If we're not investing in young people now and coaching them, how can we expect that we look around and we're going to find uh, women and people of color at the VP level when we haven't invested in them? So, you know, we really have to get serious about the leadership development that we provide for people of color to make sure that people get the opportunity to get coached and develop, that they get those stretch assignments, that it isn't only, you know, one group who gets the opportunity to run a P&L. If you don't run a P&L, you're never going to have a, a shot at running the company. You're never going to be in the corner office. Uh, so I think, you know, the pandemic and the George Floyd, the racial reckoning thing is identified that, you know, racism and this virus, you know, really are son of plate items for us, for our industry, because look how much we've been impacted uh, over the, these last, you know, going on two years. You know, so we, we have to be, as I said, part of the solution. More companies have to step up. We have to collaborate as brands to help rebuild the image of our industry. We have to collaborate on how we're going to solve some of these other issues, you know, how we're going to increase the number of Latino, Asian, Black-owned businesses so that everybody's got a piece of the economic pie. If we don't, we're going to continue to have the same challenges that we've had, and we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about a company or individual that you've worked with previously and the impact that they've had going forward on diversity within the industry? Well, you know, there's a number of companies that come to mind, you know, McDonald's, Darden, Sodexo, Hyatt, we used to do a lot of work with, MGM Mirage. These are all companies that were really leaders in diversity and inclusion. I I can't leave out John Miller at Denny's because uh, John's one of the most enlightened CEOs out there. And what you saw is, and General Mills, where I came from, Steve Sanger, their CEO at that time, is they put their money where their mouth was. They didn't just talk about it. They actually put resources in it. And you saw senior leaders, CEOs, top presidents, Ecolab's another one, you know, that's been with us. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble for leaving uh, all the other people out. You know, Yum has been there. But these companies that have been leaders on diversity and still manage to stay at or near the top of the of the food chain, uh, there's some who, who've who done great work in terms of, of uh, breakthrough. McDonald's done a great job with, with franchising for women, Blacks, and Asians. They, they're way earlier before anyone else. Then there are others who just fund this stuff to make sure they funded us. There's people who've funded us through our entire, you know, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, American Express. You know, they don't have to do the work. They just have to sometimes support you so that you can do the work. But then, then there are other companies that really do the blocking and tackling and help figure out what the needs are of the industry. You know, we're just getting ready to release a research initiative that we partnered with the, the National Restaurant Association, the Ed- Educational Foundation, and Cornell University and MFHA to look at the diversity of our industry, to look at the makeup, look at the complexion, and compare those numbers over years. How are we doing? Uh, how many 
black VPs do we have? How many his women VPs do we have in certain sectors? And then give people something to benchmark. We have additionally gone out and talked to people who work in our industry or people who don't want to work in our industry to hear what they have to say and talk to people and understand how they feel about our industry. That research was never funded before. You know, we knew we needed to ask people what they thought. We needed to do this work, but it wasn't until, you know, MFHA got connected with the National Restaurant Association and the Educational Foundation. And they said, find out, go do the best research you can do, and then we'll figure out how to pay for it. Now, that to me is commitment. That's what, what you needed to do. Gene Lee at Darden serves on our board for 10 years. He's the president of the division. Now the CEO of the company. And that was a message that Darden was sending to us and everyone else that this is a priority, okay? And it needs to stay a priority. So to me, what the CEOs are saying, what they're talking about really matters. If it's just the diversity department that's talking about it, then I would be asking some more questions because right now this is something that has to get led from the top. If the people who are steering the ship do not understand how diversity, equity, and inclusion contribute to the bottom line, we've got problems. I'm very excited to see that research from Cornell, by the way. I'm, I'm really excited to see how that shows a big picture of everything within the industry. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It's something that we're starting to get the results back now. We, we hope to hear, uh, be able to publish some of this stuff um, in and around that Thanksgiving window, but we'll see. Great. Jerry, looking forward, what do you hope that our audience takes away from hearing from you today? Well, hopefully I, they would take away that there's still a lot of passion for this work, that um, in one of the stories is dish them to the boardroom. I was going in the wrong direction. Nobody picked me and my family to be the one that's most recognized for making a contribution. Nobody picked me to be the president of anything, okay, when I was a kid because I was going in the wrong direction. I lost my dad when I was 11. So take away that there's lots more Jerry Fernandez's out there that we can coach up and develop them to be leaders in our industry. We have to get good at that, but you have to commit it, number one. Number two, this is a long-term game. This isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. You have to always get good. You know, people say, when are we gonna be done with diversity? Well, let me ask you, when are we done with marketing? We never get done with marketing. We never get done with talking about sales and leaders of tomorrow are gonna have to be culturally fluent, which means you understand the issues around different groups. You speak woman, you speak disability, you speak urban, you speak LGBTQ, you speak black. You understand that not everyone who is black is African-American. My wife's African-American descendant of slaves from Savannah, Georgia. I'm black American of Cape Verdean descent. I have African Portuguese roots. My family's were immigrants, but I all have a, we all have a black experience here. Okay, so leaders are gonna have to understand how to engage different groups in ways that people wanna work for them. So being culturally fluent. The other thing is, is you got to do the metrics. You know, that's what this data is that we're doing with Cornell. If you don't measure this stuff, nothing gets done. Nobody wants to count numbers. They say, oh, the way to be diversity, I heard this from a guy just, just at the Vibe Conference. You know, the way we get diversity, you stop talking about it. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, let's look at the advancement rates of women and people of color as compared to white men with similar educations. The system was designed to advance our white brothers and sisters more so than us. I'm not saying you did it on purpose, but that's the way it is. And so we've got to find a way that we give everyone an opportunity to contribute at the highest level of their capabilities. So, you know, again, there's lots of people in our industry we got to develop. So you got to learn how to develop them, find the Jerry Fernandez's that are out there. You know, you got to do the research to find out 
where you are and then know where you're going. You got to do the business case. You know, how is this good for our business? And, and make sure everybody understands why that's important. And then it's got to be led from the top. And I think as we go forward, we're going to have to look at flexibility. We're going to have to look at shorter shifts. We're going to have to find ways to communicate to our employees that they matter as much as the bottom line. If it's just about profit and ain't about people, we're going to have a real tough road ahead. But this is an opportunity to reinvent ourselves, reintroduce ourselves, but we got to do things differently. We got to find to help people pay off their student debt. Whatever it is that we got to do to incite them to come to work for us, we got to show them the payoff. And if we do, I think we'll be fine as an industry. Well, Jerry, in closing, I just want to say thank you for you and your team and all the incredible deep hard work that you're doing for diversity within this industry. It's clearly we're turning the corner and it's it's making a big difference. So thank you for the hard work that you're doing and for telling us all about all about MFHA today. And congratulations on 25 years. Well, thank you. I, hopefully, uh, I don't know if I'll be around for the next 25 years, but I'm certainly yes, going to be there for part of it. So thanks, <laughs> definitely. Carol. Thanks, Jerry. Have right. a great day. You too now. Did you know... The National Restaurant Association produces and hosts several webinars each month to serve and grow the industry. Topics ranging from hiring and workforce, food safety, and the most urgent and relevant policy topics during this turbulent time for restaurants. All previous webinars are also available for on-demand viewing. To learn more about upcoming and recorded webinars, please visit restaurant.org events learning. That's restaurant.org slash events slash learning. Thanks so much for listening to Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. Follow us on your favorite podcast player and find out more at restaurant.org slash podcasts. Episode produced by Dante32.